All right. Welcome to Good Dirt, interviewing leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we had a great conversation, absolutely a leader in the real estate market, Kyle Warwick. Kyle is one of the founding principals of Redgate, one of Boston's most respected brands. They work across the country, as we talked about. Kyle oversees Redgate's investment management and development businesses. Really amazing person. I've tried to be around him as much as I can during my career, and we had a blast talking to him today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And for me personally, Redgate was founded by Kyle and his partners around the same time I started in the business. So I've had a front row seat to watch this group grow and they've done so in an amazing way. You know, they built some of the most placemaking and game-changing residential developments in the city along the blue line, the red line, sort of wherever there's transit, wherever there's activity, Redgate seems to be changing the game. And they've done a great job. Kyle's been a good friend and his partners have been great to us over the years. We really enjoyed working with them and hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we are joined by our friend, Kyle Warwick, the founder and managing principal of Redgate. And we're really excited to have you. Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Kyle's first podcast. We're very excited here to break the seal. <laughs> yeah, let's go, guys. We're rookies, too. Let's so go. we're all in this together. So, Kyle, we love to start from the beginning with these things. We want to hear about early days, pre-Redgate, how'd you get into the business? You know, maybe a little bit about what you studied in school, where you went to school, how that shaped your entry into commercial real estate, and then get into the fun stuff with Redgate. No, I was lucky. I followed in my father's footsteps. I went to Colgate, played football there, studied political science, and interned during my college years in the real estate industry, project management, construction management, and joined Tishman Realty and construction in Manhattan upon graduating from Colgate. And Tishman, there's a lot of different Tishman arms, right? So that's not Tishman Spire. That's, that's not Tishman Spire. That's right. the, I don't know if you've seen it, if you've gone to New York, the Iron T. Right. That's the Dan Tishman variety. They were a development company and a construction manager, Monster. They merged into AECON now. So you talk about these avenues into real estate, and we all talk to emerging graduates and it's a little opaque, right? How do you get into real estate? And that's one door I always talk about is construction management, project management, the logistics, and learning from the ground up. So I was lucky enough to start Manhattan for Tishman. And then I moved to California and worked on the J. Paul Getty Museum in Brentwood. So that was... Very cool. It's a real iconic estate. project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard Meyer, the architect, uh, worked for a project management firm called Dinwiddie. And on site for four and a half years at the Getty. Not a bad view from the office for a few no, years up was, there. It was great. Brentwood was awesome. I lived in Manhattan Beach. I lived with some Colgate guys and then lived with some locals in Manhattan Beach and commuted to Brentwood and, and learned a lot. It was city building. It was you know, 1.6 million square feet. It was over a billion dollar project at the time. And we moved mountains literally. and We did a lot of site work and learned a lot about great architecture, landscape design. Lori Olin was a landscape design architect. Richard Meyer and staff. It was, it was amazing. You know, really got lucky. And that was through a recession. And that was great ground up experience through a recession. Always knew that we, at the time, my, my wife and I wanted to move back east and we picked Boston and went after it. And first one to get a job and the company would move us, we moved. So I landed, luckily, at Spalding and Sly and went across the country to start at Spalding and Sly in 1994. And 
spent 17 years there and started off as a project manager there in the development group. So shifting a little bit, swimming upstream, getting some experience, ground up experience and taking night classes at UCLA Extension. And when I first arrived in Manhattan, my first extracurricular education was blueprint reading at (laughs) NYU at night. So supplementing and then getting into project management, development management was falling slide. What was the market like for those of us that weren't in the business in the early 90s? What was the market like at that point when you made that move? Luckily, we're coming out of another recession and things were really heating up. And during that time, there was a lot of asset management. There was a lot of blocking and tackling, not a lot of ground up development. So I was lucky enough to have that experience at the Getty. And that translated into some of the work we were doing with our high tech clients at Spalling Sly, Lotus, IBM, and Oracle. So I started on those accounts on the advisory side. And what what an insane wave that was, right, in this market at that time. Yeah, we were six people in that group, and I helped grow that group to 27 people. From the development standpoint, what type of work were you guys focused on? What was the sweet spot back then for Spalding and Sly? Office. Office development was the sweet spot. I did start with a colleague, the residential initiative, and we did get into residential development and mixed-use development. We, at the time, permitted Fan Pier with my colleague, Dan O'Connell, and that was obviously real heavy land planning, mixed-use development, and so we started, I think, the bread and butter in the 1960s. The firm was truly an office, suburban office developer. And then in the 90s, pivoted to become a full-service real estate company with investment, with our own funds, kind of the GP model. And so that's what we certainly emulated at Redgate was really lifting that piece out of Spalding Sly. And back to Fanpeer for a second, because I think a lot of people look at Fanpeer and the Seaport in general and see it as some really great developers who have taken it to where it is. But you were down there when it was dirt lots, right? Before Fallon and Mass Mutual, you were there with the Pritzkers, working with the Pritzkers on that development. What was it like back there? It was a leap of faith, right? There was nothing there. Pretty amazing to have that vision and get that permitted. Yeah, you know, with the artery coming down, the central artery coming down, those barriers to some great real estate fell. And the four-point channel and cleaning up of the harbor. So that was the other thing. The harbor used to be dirty. We had an elevated highway. And so no one wanted to cross that. They would cross it to park for four bucks, five bucks. Mm -hmm. Our dad was one of them. (laughs) Yeah. We, We distinctly remember. So that was taboo back then. But You know, with those things happening, the harbor getting clean and the artery coming down, it really opened. And it was really timing for us with the Pritzkers. We were third one in. You know, we followed Boston Properties in, you know, we're third developer to partner with the Pritzkers and finally got 2.1 million square feet of mixed-use development there approved. And then the Pritzkers ran into some internal family, well-publicized. This is not any secret, but they did divest from a lot of real estate and industry, and we sold that asset to Fallon, and he did a great job executing. Yeah, it's amazing. Ignited all of the seaport, you know, from there. Well, it's just incredible now, and it's talked about all the time, but it's incredible what the seaport has become. But most Bostonians remember those early innings really well, and it did not happen overnight. There was several iterations and some really great master planning efforts that ended up 
opening the door to what happened. And if you keep going down Summer Street, we're going to get to it later, but there's a big project that's also changing the way that the whole city feels down there. So with that, why don't we transition a little bit to where you went from there? So Spalding and Sly, you've grown the company. You're a, a vertically integrated investor, developer, construction manager, advisor. What happened next? I know JLL entered the picture, and then we'll move on to Redgate from there. Yeah. You know, we were at the time looking to grow, Spalding Sly was, and we were looking to expand into markets and we were affiliated with Colliers and we were trying to, at the time, buy a couple offices, LA, New York, and quite honestly, we were privately held. We couldn't afford it. So we were looking for capital at the time and JLL came along and said, hey, we'll be your New York office. We'll be your Shanghai office. You know, we'll be the London office. And they convinced the powers to be. I was one of five managers, but I wasn't managing member. And so this was not my call for sure, but it was decided the best thing for the platform was to merge into JLO. The timing was good. It was 2006, you know, at 2005 at the time of the discussions. And it was decided that we would merge in And I think, you know, looking back, it was tremendous for transactional professionals. You know, they did get that bench. They got the full service, internationally coordinated, very strong company. And on the investment development side, a little bit different, right? They're not investment developers. They have LIM and they do a lot of different things. And what they do best is really corporate service and investor service and transactional services. And so there was really no surprise that after three plus years, that 27 people in the development group went their way and started new companies. And, you know, they're all doing really well. And, you know, you look up to a lot of these great alumni of Spalling Sly and you know, we did. We grew up in the industry, at least I did, with folks I feel very, very close to today and building these relationships as we have over our period. I mean, I certainly feel as close as brothers to a couple of mm-hmm. these folks. We so. always talk about the Spalding and Slide diaspora. Marty, Dev, Dwyer, Damien, it's an amazing crew. And those are before Mike and I's days, but that crew is still tight and still resonates. And It's pretty amazing that that many talented folks came from one place. Yeah, yeah, it was great. That taught us a bunch of lessons about people and building culture. And it had this play hard, work hard mentality. And we had great people and a lot of former athletes, right? Or at least folks that love sports. So that was was the culture, working hard, playing hard, providing a great service to our clients, making some strategic investments and growing and growing relationships. You see, you've been through that and you've been a few different amazing places, but it probably gave you a great perspective on what to build next. And I think starting Redgate, starting with a clean slate must have been refreshing for you coming from probably a lot of infrastructure around you and being able to start it over. So what was that like? How did it come together? What were the first days like and what, what did you envision? And then we'll talk about where you're at today. Well, there was a lot of visioning during that period, and there was more than a napkin, and there was a lot of thought. I mean, the Great Recession accelerated some things and kind of surprised some people, so the leap was definitely scary at the time, but we were lucky enough that it was the end of 2009. 
So if you think back, that's the perfect time to get organized. And so it was October of 2009, and I left JLL on a Friday. And on Monday, we had Gate Ventures up and running at an empty 7,000 square feet on top of an architectural shop. And we started filling in the blanks. That was Monday. Ralph was there Tuesday. John Myers, Tom Hamill, Lisa Serafin followed shortly thereafter. And then Damien came over. I actually, and this was, we were in the North End, North Station area at the time. So I had a tradition on Fridays where we had family pizza night. And so I'd go in the North End and I scour all the greatest places and it was lunchtime. So I found this place, no surprise to some, but Dino's at the end of Prince and Salem, Salem and Prince right there. And so Dino's has about a two foot long chicken Parmesan, which is unbelievable. They bake their own bread. (laughs) Dino's is not a paid sponsor of the podcast, (laughs) by the way. So... Went to Dino's and after that went across to see Frankie at Monica's Mercado and bought my fresh pasta and meatballs. And then next door is the bakery, the Bova Bakery. I love Bova. So Open late night. Yeah. Been been there a few times for a rice ball (laughs) in my my younger days, late night. So I was buying the dough, the fresh dough at Bova's. So I've got my meatballs. I've got my fresh pasta and my dough. In the other hand, I walk out the door and literally bump into Damien Zari. <laughs> no way. Damien is dusty. He's coming from a demolition site of a triple decker that he bought that he was refurbishing and flipping in the North End. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? I said, hey, I've got this space in the North Station area. We're collecting people and we're starting this company. And he's like, wow, that sounds great. Do you think we could do some big deals? I said, absolutely. We could definitely do some big deals. Why don't you just come over? No pressure. We could see how it goes. We've got a desk, phone, computer. <laughs> Let's go. Oh, that's awesome. He came over and we started Gate Residential. And he did. He brought over a Archstone Legacy deal in Somerville that ultimately became Maxwell's Green. Wow. And so oh, that amazing was a great project. That was 09 going into 2010. We closed that JV in 2010, and then we had the largest loan out there coming out of the recession with Santander, and we brought in AEW to capitalize that deal. And that was another Spalding Sly relationship, Maureen Joyce at the time, and Bob Plum and Michael Byrne, they bought in. They were literally, we didn't go wide on this thing, on this equity raise, And they believe in this five-minute walk to Davis Square and the vibrancy of Somerville and skinny jeans and young lumberjacks, you know, hanging out in Somerville. No, you were pioneers over there. And it's like, God, was that before the Green Line extension had been announced? And that was about the time. I know it took 10 years for it to Yeah, we didn't underwrite that and we, we didn't sell that. But what we did sell was the community path in Somerville. Somerville. And, and if you've been there, it's like their Riviera. Like they back up to it. It's this great bike path, walking path, public gardens are along there. And so that got extended. We actually efforted that and, and helped execute that to extend to our site boundary. So that was on one side. And then the green line extension that we had to work with was to the right. And so, yeah, that ended up to be really our thesis for 
gate residential. So Damien went from doing three families in the North End to 300 units in Somerville. And then along the blue line, 300 units in five or six other places over the years. So yeah. it's pretty amazing what, what you two have built in the residential well, side. What a lucky encounter that was for me because this Damien is probably one of the best multi-family guys oh, out there's there. There's no doubt. There's no He's doubt. He's a star. So AEW, you mentioned AEW capitalized that project and looking at some of the other deals on the residential side that you've worked through, it's partners like AEW, Cross Harbor. I mean, these are very, very high quality institutional LPs. It's amazing that your first deal, and this is one of the questions we had, your first deal was AEW. So right off the bat, you had credibility, clearly. How have you built out that business, that joint venture business? Because it's an impressive Rolodex of LPs. And I don't think there's a, a group who has a better roster than that. Right. Yeah. In the beginning, the GP side was syndicated, one-off deals. And so what we did was we built a fund structure around those relationships. So we raised our first fund. It was $20 million of GP capital and deployed that in four great assets and then raised our second fund. And that was $50 million. And literally, it took two months to raise the 50. And at the time, it was a great time to raise. We had a great track record now. We didn't have to fake it. We didn't have to lean on Spalding Sly track record. That was commingled with some great people as well. But this was now our own. And so that helped. That helped build the story. And it gave us the flexibility. We went from there and leaned on that fund to get a line of credit and to leverage that into buying land and to extending regulatory approvals, which we feel very comfortable in, and adding value early, not overpaying for land and not really competing in a public process either to attain that land and a lot of off-market, a lot of cold calling and off-market structuring that allowed us into this market. Well, it's amazing. And, and again, a testament to the quality of the sponsor when you have names like that and Rockpoint and Neil V. It's just the list goes on. So it must be gratifying to see all that. So congrats. And you've delivered. I mean, that development business, just for people listening, could you sort of give an overview of the structure of Redgate? Because you, you sort of have your investment business and your advisory business and how those interact. Yeah, I think the foundation of our company is the advisory business, the owner's project manager, the OPM, the strategic advisor, the land planner, the construction manager, overseeing this work for investors, you know, landlords, corporations, occupiers, and then institutions. And higher ed institutions, healthcare institutions, and government institutions. So we've got our firm now aligned into those three verticals on the advisory side. So we have leaders that are overseeing those buckets for us. And we are now looking at growth and bringing those three service lines into the Mid-Atlantic through our Bethesda office yep. and through our Raleigh, Durham, Raleigh, North Carolina office. I think we know, but what's behind that market focus? What's attracting you guys to those? I know that you've had some really great clients down there and you've been involved in some amazing projects, but what, what's sort of driving the growth in those two specific areas? Well, we have followed our clients. So our client on the investor side, investor services side, have brought us into the market four or five years ago. So boots on the ground were very important. And then building around that and then building an office to help build culture and then 
moving people from our Boston office, from headquarters, the DNA, into those markets was another factor. And so in Raleigh, which reminds us a lot of Boston 10 years ago, you've got the technology, you've got meds, eds, you've got a great employment base down there and a lot of growth projected. And, you know, a very accommodating and supportive and pro-business atmosphere and environment down there. And so moving a partner, moving our head of design and construction on the investment side, and moving a, a senior associate down into that region and marrying those three with two locals. Very strong project management and just great people. So now you think about it, we now have real roots in Raleigh and we're doing the same thing in Bethesda. More homegrown there, but with a lot of partner focus in Bethesda. Great. And what types of opportunities you focused on in those markets? Does it sort of match what your sweet spot is here in the Boston market? Yeah, I think going forward, it's going to be, we will in this recessionary environment, lean on the institutional group and institutions and getting in, it'd be great. The North Carolina states, the Dukes, Chapel Hill, and hitting the universities, which we're just starting to do. Yeah. And I know some of our best partnerships we love here in this Boston office in Newmark, working with the Redgate team, some of the best partnerships we have are on those institutional campuses where we're helping, you know, in tandem with your team, think through long-term campus planning, which usually is ending, you know, with some transactional components and, and monetizations or campus additions and acquisitions. And you guys bring a great perspective on that work. And that translates very quickly around the country, for sure. Yeah, it certainly does. The work that we're doing with you here with Simmons College is emblematic of what we could be doing down there. So you found that that skill set is translatable to campuses nationally, yeah. certainly in the middle. Yeah, Atlantic, absolutely. But... I mean, we're we're thinking about a national practice there. Awesome. Well, we don't think there's anybody better in the space than Tom Hamill, the whole group, but Tom's the best. And it's not just because he's a hockey player. So <laughs> can we switch a little bit to multifamily? And, and it's a selfish ask, but would love to talk about your growth in that regard. You know, I'm quite familiar with the portfolio and it's it's amazing. What's most striking to me is just the placemaking and the branding. You think of deals like 500 Ocean, like Ryder, like Maxwell's Green. You don't just build apartments. These aren't commodity products. They're places with excellent top of market amenity packages, great finishes, but the brands, you know, they're places that people think of. How have you approached that business? How have you found success there? What do you think the future looks like? And, you know, just tell us a little bit about the multifamily growth over at Redgate. Yeah. I kind of mentioned as we back in 2010, kind of backing into our thesis and once executing Maxwell's Green, drawing a circle around that and saying, this is what we want to build. We want to look at geography. We want to look at location. We want a five-minute walk to a 20-minute ride to a five-minute walk to work. We'll look at no property that is further than 30 minutes total to get to work. We coined the outer urban space yeah. of Boston. We didn't like this inner suburban vernacular or fringe. We got rid of all that. And I think we kind of captured that outer urban world. So we became a big fish in that little pond. But we defined it and then we kind of owned it in areas like Chelsea, East Boston, we love. And we can validate it because we've sold sites before <laughs> where Kyle showed up on the red line. He takes the train from their office in Post Office Square. 
to the site. And if it's within 30 minutes, then it's an opportunity. If not, it's not. But he puts it to the test. It's not just a, a quick Google search. That's for sure. It works. And I think design, you know, obviously the first thing we do look at is location, but design counts, branding counts, marketing, partnering with the municipalities to first think about accentuating, elevating the municipality that we're about to build in. Quincy Center was a great example where the mall, the Braintree Mall, had sucked all the life out of downtown Quincy and filling in a little hole there that we did and helped them plan. We came in with our advisory arm and helped the city plan and revitalize and set the wheels in motion for that. And then we came in with our investment piece and invested in the first piece coming out of the ground. And that was high design and thinking about the specialness of each development one by one, no really cookie cutter approach, but thinking about what is special about this location and then really getting into the details on the design and grinding on all of those details. I think our our team is loves that stuff. Yeah, well, there's nobody better and. That's another instance where you were pioneering in that, you know, those rents and amenities like that, finishes like that didn't exist in Quincy, particularly in Quincy Center. So you really changed the game down there. And to this day, West of Chestnut is just it's an incredible asset, and I'm sure it's performing as such. You change the neighborhood. You create some momentum, too. I think it takes so much conviction. We're not in the development business. Well, a lot of times we're selling sites and selling the, the finished product for developers, but it takes a lot of conviction and some courage to go and say, hey, this neighborhood deserves a higher level of multifamily product and we're going to deliver it. And I bet when you show the design to people at the first meetings, they say, what? That doesn't look like it belongs here. And look, you walk around Quincy Center and the momentum generated from that project has, has been amazing. Yeah. No, we're proud of that fact and partnering with the mayors of those cities and you know having that pride after. And we do say, if you don't feel a little uncomfortable, it's probably not the place to develop. Revere's, Chelsea's, Quincy Center's, you know, we really helped make those better communities and safer, safer communities. I think being able to change a neighborhood is a great achievement. And as a developer, you wear a number of hats at Redgate, but I think in your DNA is this development acumen, but being able to drive by something and say that you guys conceptualized it, saw a site that might have been a casket factory that had burned down, whatever it is, and say, this can be something great here. And then be able to drive by on the weekend and, and see what you did is must be a pretty cool accomplishment that only really you get to feel as someone who actually built the project. Yeah, that's been fun. I think the proudest moment was when Damien and I walked on the Maxwell's Green site after all of that and seeing the earth movers and excavators and all the laborers after that great recession, be on site and all that activity and looking at each other. Wow, we did this. We did this. It's awesome. I'm surprised it wasn't cool. the closing. The closing <laughs> would have been a proud moment too. Closing, we were, we were yeah. lucky to be a part right. of that. had a couple of wows that day too. Yeah, yeah. So that business, that's where you're growing. That's a big part of what you're doing, but it's obviously not easy these days with capital markets where they are, with costs where they are, with changing regulatory environment where it is. What do you see in that development space? What's making it harder? How are you thinking about it and and navigating those challenges? Yeah, I think right now it's tough. You know, costs are up, taxes are up, operating costs are up, and insurance premiums are up, and deductibles are up. Everything's up. Utilities are up. (laughs) Utilities, everything. 
So we're working through all of that now. And I think the long view is, is a good view here. The dynamic nature of our market and the buying power of that renter is still there. So all the metrics are, are solid. I, I think, you know, the good news is we've got a couple of projects in the regulatory process and getting through that and thinking about one project that we have under construction that's going to take 24 months. You know, I think all of those projects bode well. Right now, underwriting the deal today, it doesn't look good. And so you have to put a different lens on it. And I think there are also other nodes that we think are possible. And it's just not this outer urban or urban world of ours. But there are other communities that need housing, that want housing, that may be forced into housing, that are long transit, that may be ripe for development in a different typology. So we're looking at that now. And then growth in markets, you know, Raleigh's still a strong market and we're running up against some of those same headwinds, but there's strong growth there. And so things, honestly, in the last few weeks, we feel that construction pricing has peaked mm -hmm. and there's leveling going on right now. And we hope by the summer, maybe there's some softening and some reduction. And we think interest rates are hopefully going to peak in June and come back down and maybe we get a, you know, a cut in the end of the year. And so I think spreads are going to compress and I think your underwriting is going to look better the second half of this year than it has the first half. And there's just more optimism we found in the first few weeks of the year that we're getting more calls, we're having more meetings, hearing from LPs, hearing from developers looking for land. There's just this encouragement around the greater Boston multifamily market. And we're heading out to Las Vegas shortly for NMHC. And that's usually a good barometer for where particularly the LPs and the big national developers, where their heads are at and what their plans are. And if, you know, the number of meetings we've scheduled is any indication, there's a lot of interest and a lot of capital coming this way. So we think that's a good sign. Yeah, good. We have talked to our equity partners and they're all salivating about a reset of urban core. Everybody wants to get their hands on that. And probably we're not going to see a lot of that, right? We'll see some of it. But I think that's going to firm up in this next quarter and hopefully people will be back to business the second half of this year. We think that'll be the case. Can we talk about the Edison for yeah. a minute? Because I think that's a fascinating project, probably perfectly suited from a complexity standpoint for your team. But it's a big, complicated site, very important site for the city. And you guys have brought a great vision there and, and are working your way through that process. So what what's sort of the latest in your process there? Yeah. So as you know, we partner with Hilco and they're leading the charge into the first phase, successfully getting the first phase approved with our colleague Gregory Bielecki at their side, got BPDA approval for that first phase of two lab buildings and the renovation of the turbine halls, one, two, and three. And the third could be an incubator, lab incubator, a building within a building, and active retail renovation, placemaking, a piece of a waterfront park and infrastructure. So I, you know, I'm bullish, been cheering our partnership on and, and Hillco has been a great partner and a great leader in this. And yeah, I think the vision's spot on and we're bullish on it. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. I think the fact that you can preserve a few of those really funky 
buildings. Just it's amazing that you can even do right. that. And at the same time, build purposeful buildings. Right. And purpose built buildings for lab. You know, we're not trying to squeeze into a 12 foot floor to floor. You know, we're going to really design great buildings to attract a lead tenant there. And so, yeah, I think it's a, a once in a lifetime, and we're we're honored to be. Well, small, we're all small we're all cheering you on too, as a, as a Bostonian, somebody who lives down the street. We're excited for the turbine hall and the retail amenitization of that part of the neighborhood. It's it's going to change, and we think really pull the center of gravity down Summer Street across the channel and into South Boston proper, and and that east side of South Boston. There is such a demand for retail and walkability and activation. So. We think you'll be successful and we're, we're cheering you on, that's for sure. So that project, you know, in looking at the renderings, looking at, at what it will become, that's high-rise steel frame multifamily. Is that correct? And that's a bit of a departure from some of the things you've done before. Has that been more challenging to capitalize? I know that construction typology creeps up. How are you thinking about that? How has that been? That's, you know, phase two when there is a stick built, potential stick built there as well, which could help kick things off there when the focus gets to residential. But that's definitely second phase. So what's next? What are the growth areas for Redgate? You talked about the Mid-Atlantic in Boston. You know, you're working on some amazing projects. The Edison, Gibson Point is another one that we're huge fans of. That's an incredible piece of real estate. Are you going to keep following the blue line, keep following the red line? Is that the general theme? And are you actively going to be looking for sites this year or are you focused on what you have? Yeah, we are hyper-focused on what's in front of us. We hope to break ground on two great projects, multifamily projects this year, one here in East Boston and and the other in Raleigh, Durham, and execute and execute in the form of great asset management on the buildings we still own, and then great execution in the construction management of the ground up development that we have in front of us. So I think that's priority number one. Priority number two is to look for opportunity. And we think there will be a better spread on bid-ask on land. We like land. I you know, would love to get into a large parcel of land, mixed-use piece of property that can take a couple years through design and planning right now. I think that would be smart. So we'll see. We'll see if land prices come down. So I think that could be a priority of ours. And then quite honestly, really thinking about that geographic expansion and focusing on our advisory expansion into those two markets I talked about earlier. That is really our business plan. You know, and then think about our third fund and what that will look like. So that is part of the 2023 business plan is to get through fund two and identify the rest of that fund. Hopefully this year, we think is still possible. We have dry powder, which is good, coming into the second half of this year, and then thinking about what structure and what typology that third fund will look like. Great. And as far as the capital markets and raising equity right now and you know how you're, these different experiences have been raising these funds, how has the most recent experience been compared to you know, historically now that you guys have an unbelievable track record, but also in you know, a different period of time? Right. I think from the high net worth and family office, I think it's still a very attractive environment to go raise capital that way. And that's what we did last time. Do we go more institutional? I think that may be a little bit of a heavier lift going into this market. So we'll see. We'll see how we lever that up for fund three. 
But I still feel that the high net worth individual, a family office, the small institutions and endowments, they're still looking for development yield and a proven operator, which we are now. Great. And I know, you know, Redgate, one thing we can say about your entire team, you guys are incredibly involved in the community. I think not only where you have development projects and interests, I think you guys are great at becoming a part of the neighborhood in that way and finding ways to pitch in outside of the site and the property. But just in general, we know that you guys have always been in support of Boston Children's Hospital, the Corey Griffin Foundation, which we really appreciate. United Way, you guys are a major group that's behind the United Way. What has that been? That's obviously part of the culture at Redgate, and you guys show up everywhere. You know, I think you have someone at every event every night, which is not an easy lift. No, it's important, and we've been there, and we, once again, took a page out of Spalling Sly's book where they were leaders there, and it is important. It is our obligation, and we've tried to pass the torch a little bit and get more people involved and, you know, make it also purposeful. And so actually this year, we've got a task force and Redgate is going to get a little bit more purposeful. Even internally, we've been, you know, told that it's a little bit like peanut butter, what we do. We spread it around. And so we've got to put that mission behind it. And that's going to be coming out this year as well. So that'll be fun. And we've got a small crew that's focused on that. And we're also going to advocate to our people that it is important to be involved in these nonprofits. I gained a lot out of seven years at Save the Harbor, Save the Bay, and then sharing that nonprofit and helping it grow and have real purpose. And all these great people I met on the board are partners, investors, our corporate accountant, our JV partner. You know, there's so many relationships that are born there. And that's part of showing up coming into the office and meeting people and making that purposeful as well. So I continue, I'm, I'm on the board of advisors for Northeastern School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs. And that's been a four-year great experience for me and being involved with the search for the new director and being involved in a great purpose there, you know, transit resiliency, planning. It's been super. And I've met a lot of great people there. So that's just another thing for people up and coming in our, in our industry to get involved. Well, you, you all set a great example for the industry and all those things you're involved with, whether the philanthropies, whether it's politics, you just you do a really good job of staying active in the community. And it's something we all look up to. And it's actually something that we try to do here. Rob Griffin does a great job of keeping the firm active and involved. And it's a huge part of culture here. And I think Redgate you know, has one of the best cultures in the real estate business. Are you guys all back in the office these days? What's the latest back to the office work from home setup for Redgate? We've been flexible you know, with our approach and we haven't mandated. And I think there's been no backsliding. I think we've really managed through COVID very well. The office was available right away. People were in the office because they just couldn't work from their one bedroom or they had kids and people would come in. And, and you know, now we're just trying to get, once again, a little bit more purposeful about coming in. Don't come in just to come in. But, you know, these encounters that you have, at work, the mentoring that happens, just watching other people work, what they say, body language in meetings. It's really important. It's the way we grew up. And yeah, we're firm believers that you really can't build a company and a culture from home. But we also, at the same time, stress flexibility. 
and taking advantage of technology. You know, we went to the Teams platform on March 13th, and, you know, it just so happened that that was the day that we were launching. Well, everybody was sent home that day, and it was so lucky. And so we <laughs> patted Nat Weiser on the back, the partner in charge of that. So, yeah, like, don't deny that. Design meetings at home and, and then working out and then going to a job site instead of having to come into the office, go home and take your last couple meetings there, all for it. But I think to grow and to rise in, in this industry, it's a people's business. And I think you have to mostly, I'll say mostly, come in. Yeah, we wouldn't disagree. And I'm sure Dave Martell, your old friend, would agree with that as well. But it's interesting because you're on both sides of it. You're building apartment buildings. And I'm sure I've, I've seen them. A lot of your amenities are focused on work from home and creating work from home opportunities for your prospective residents. So you are on both sides of that equation. Right. But then they you know, walk out five minutes and they take the tea into work. So yeah. I think the combo, I think you have to have both and I think you have to allow for both. And I would say that if they're mostly in, it's it's a good thing for everybody. Yeah. And, and all cliches aside, we see it here. We're in kind of the deal business, but when we're in the office, just bumping into people, this is an audio podcast, but we have the shades drawn in the conference room with a sign on it that says, do not disturb, we're recording. Because if people see Kyle in here, there, there would be 10 different folks who would come open the door, say, hey, I want to talk to you about something. We have an idea or call me after this or come over to my office after. Because those collisions that we always used to talk about when we first went to sort of more of an open layout and more glass, that's legit. And that's where a lot of the magic happens. And half the things that come up from a transactional standpoint in this office are born out of chance encounters downtown or yeah. in the office. No, or absolutely. I also worry about our fine establishments downtown and some of these great entrepreneurs opening restaurants in the downtown financial district and not being supported enough. You know, the SIP and what the bond and what they're doing at the Langham, you know, that's some great energy, but it's still a little thin. So I think, you know, our leaders, I think, need to do a little bit better job getting people, all people back to downtown. Yeah, we wholeheartedly agree with that. So we've talked a lot about Redgate, a lot about your career. We want to hear a little bit about Kyle Warwick, the human being, what is your, people love hearing, what is your daily routine like? I think you take the boat, but what does your, your typical day look like? Yeah, I've been lucky. I take a boat. I do. No surprise. Our office is one block from the boat as it lands in <laughs> Rose Wharf. And um, five minutes, literally five minutes, I can make it five minutes from my house to the shipyard where we park in a 1600 car surface parking lot and run to the boat. Yep. Every day. And save some time there. And 55 minutes door to door, but 35 of those, you're on the boat, you're going past the Harbor Islands, and it's a great way to commute. So I start the day with a mostly with a cup of coffee with my wife and leave the house and get to the office and get home by, by dinner. And that's the other thing, having kids and you know being able to get home every day and every night for dinner, it was important for me. So being close to that commute was important. You had a lot of soccer practices to, to get yeah, back to over right, the years. Right. Prolific soccer coach, Kyle Warwick. <laughs> yeah. People should know that. Soccer, lacrosse, my girls. I have four girls and four daughters. And yeah, sports and athletics were a big part of, of their youth and, and still in college, you know, a big part of their lives. So. Yeah. Well, they're all stars in their own right. We've met a few of them, and we want to get some of them to Newmark if we can, if we can wrestle <laughs> exactly. away from, I'm proud from of their my employers. Girls. I'm very proud of my girls. Two in New York and two in college right now. And in the real estate business, a couple of them, right? Or, or heading that way? Yeah. Maddie, my oldest, is with Silverstein 
developers downtown and was at JLL in the capital markets group. And, and my other daughter, Cassie, went to Colgate. She's in private equity and came out of investment banking. And so... Smart kids. Both Congratulations. Down, yeah, both Not downtown. So bad. Love, love going to see them. That's awesome. And in your spare time, what do you do to have fun? I love golf. I love playing racket sports, skiing, love skiing. Are you playing tennis, pickleball, paddle? I love pickle. I'm not a paddle guy, probably because of the knees, but pickle. I could do pickle. Are you doing pickleball courts in any of your residential projects? (laughs) We're starting to see those. No, good question. Of course, we put in pickle at One North, and it's a huge hit. Oh, I bet. It's very approachable. We had a great event out there. We had a food truck. We had a keg, and we had pro tennis pickleball coaches come out for a free event with our newly opened pickleball court. That is awesome. And it was a lot of fun. It was great. This was another thing that our partners, our great partners, Mark and Mark from Transdell, they were all in on pickle and we joined in, Damien and I joined in and totally went 100%. That's awesome. Built this great court. Well, it's and smart. And it's, yeah. and it's not super capital intensive, right? You're no, putting some lines no, and some it's pavement great. and getting in that. It's net. great. So yeah, sports still active. Exercise, trying to work out, throwing a little yoga. Should be doing more of that. And I think we've seen you at the Cisco Brewery once or twice. So I yeah, know you like yeah. to spend some time there. Love that. Love that place. And beaches are attractive. Love that. So awesome. Taking advantage of everything New England gives us. Cool. What do you read on a daily basis? Where do you get sort of your inputs? Or are you reading any good books lately that you Besides love? Besides our podcast, where, where are you getting all your info? <laughs> well, the funny thing, and this is the truth. You guys do a great job and you send books at Christmas time. And one of the older books was The Wright Brothers. Yeah. I think. That was yeah. awesome. And <laughs> I just read it and I just finished that. Yeah. It's great. And I loved it. It's a throwback. I highly recommend it. Old school, Midwestern values, ingenuity, persistence, hardworking, strong beliefs. It was a refreshing read. So that was literally the last book. And that was at David McCullough, another Hingham guy. And that was. McCullough and you know he passed recently Rest in yeah, peace. great yeah. great guy I love I love all of his books he is a legend and he comes up all the time in these conversations we've given out several of his books from our team here at Newmark to our friends and clients and it's great because people might not get to a book right away but they read it when they get to it and Dave McCullough of course is always a hit just a, a legend and God rest his soul amazing American treasure yeah, John Adams was one of the, if you're working in Boston and living in Boston or 776, his other book, yeah. loved both of those. But reading John Adams when you're, you know, doing work in Quincy or yeah, it's, totally. like, it's crazy. Totally. So that's kind of the fun part of reading these historic novels. Boys in the Boat was one of my favorites. Yeah, Boys, Boys in, in the, the Boat was awesome. Red Notice was very timely when we, yeah. when we came out with Red Notice. Yeah, no, I love, I love all those books. For those listeners not on the list, you can send Mike and I a note and we'll put you on the distribution. It's our, our annual Christmas and holiday Yeah, gift, right so. after we sell the deal for you, we yeah, put you on exactly. the list. We'll <laughs> put a list agreement in the envelope. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Kyle, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank, thank you for you all your, your friendship and business over the years. We're excited to see what's next and, and looking forward to a great 23. Great. Thank you for the support. Appreciate it.